0: With me, if you will, to Genesis 41, we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 57 today. But as you probably noticed last week, we kind of stopped in the middle of the story. And I could explain why we did that, but you probably understand we're trying to take this in chunks that we can digest and uh, in order to keep things together, that's where I decided to stop. But I'm going to back up to verse um, 25, and we'll pick up there so we get the flow of the story. This is Genesis 41, beginning in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, "The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years uh, are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. the dreams are one." And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for good or for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one will lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured." Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made me, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And as we have prayed and sung and recited this morning, we trust your word. So would you do that work that only you can do, speak it to our hearts, make it effective in our lives, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as a people, we love stories of redemption and deliverance. So many of our books and movies are such. The story of insurmountable obstacle overcome. The story of the underdog. The story of great odds being overcome or defied. The tale of a great wrong being righted. I think it's one of the reasons why... The story of Joseph resonates with us. Why it's so captivating? Because this is a story of incredible wrongs being righted, of of incredible obstacles being overcome. If we didn't know the story so well, it would be a surprise at every turn. It's not what we would expect from a story. But unfortunately, we know the story of Joseph. Most of us do. We've If you grew up in the church or if you've read, this is just one of those stories that's so well known. And so the problem is we have to remind ourselves some things about what was really taking place to really understand what Joseph was facing. It's at this point in the story that his life turns around, and it turns around drastically. If you think about all that he has been through up until now, it isn't a slow turn. It is a dramatic turn. In the morning, Joseph wakes up as a prisoner, and by the afternoon, he is clothed in fine linen with Pharaoh's signet ring on his hand, and he is second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. We left off last week after he explained to Pharaoh what his dream meant. There would be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of great famine, and then it's that in that context that we pick up in verse 33, where he begins to explain this plan that he has. And a lot of times we might look at this plan and think this was Joseph's idea. But just as the interpretation of the dreams weren't by Joseph's power or Joseph's wisdom or Joseph's insight, and Joseph was certain to give credit to where the dream comes from or the interpretation of the dream, even so, I think the plan was the work of the Spirit's uh, discerning in his life or, or giving him that discernment. And so I don't think Joseph was prepared for what was about to happen. I think Joseph is as surprised as we are when we come to this point in the story that Pharaoh decides to pick him. As we've unpacked the story of Joseph, and jo- Joseph's story its long, as we've seen. We've been in it for a few weeks now, and it continues on. And so we're breaking it up into, into sections that we can look at each week. There are some themes that we have seen emerge, and some of these themes continue through even today's part of the story. The overarching theme in this passage, however, is Joseph's confidence in God's Word. That may be apparent or maybe it's not at first glance. Let me point out why I think this is the theme of this passage. First of all, Joseph didn't have the Bible like we do. He did not have the written word of God. He had the word of God in a means that was different. Several weeks ago, we talked about this. We looked at Hebrews, the opening line of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God had revealed himself in a variety of ways to our fathers, but now he has revealed himself to us in his son. So you and I have the complete revelation of God. Joseph did not. There were two means by which primarily he received the revelation of God. One was through the oral tradition that had been passed down. The other was through these dreams or the interpretation, rather, of the dreams, his dreams, and then the dreams of others. The oral tradition had been passed down from his fathers. If you think of his great-grandfather Abraham, who had received that promise in Genesis 12 that we look at so many times, the promise that God would bless him, make him a great nation, make him a blessing to all nations, and you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. Joseph certainly heard and knew that promise. That promise was not only given to Abraham, it was repeated to his grandfather Isaac and his father Jacob. And so the God of his fathers was his God. The promises given to his fathers were his promises, and he knew them well. And Joseph's life is proof that he trusted in God's word. From the pit that his brothers threw him in, to the enslavement, the unjust uh, accusation, the false accusation, to imprisonment, to becoming the interpreter of dreams, Joseph is steadied through all of these difficulties because he knows God's promises. He trusts God. He takes God at his word. But God had also revealed him, himself to, to Joseph, not just through the oral tradition of the promises being passed down, but also through the dreams, uh, through his dreams and the dreams of others. And again, Joseph demonstrated his confidence in what God had revealed to him by saying to Pharaoh, remember in verse 32, that the doubling down means that God's about to do this. God has shown Pharaoh earlier in the, in the explanation. God's shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Now, the doubling of his dreams tells you God's about to do this. And if you remember in, when he interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, what did he say to them in chapter 40? Do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph knew that the interpretation, the insight, this gift, as it were, was not his it wasn't because he came up with something. It was, wasn't because he possessed certain powers. This was the work of God's Spirit revealing this through him. And so Joseph knew the source of the revelation, and he trusted in that source for guidance. I really appreciate what the writer Alan Ross says about Joseph's dreams. He, he writes this, "'Dreams as a form of revelation may not be given now.'" They were a part of the diverse means that God used in the Old Testament. He's alluding there to that Hebrews passage. We now possess God's full revelation, which makes it clear that God controls the destinies of nations for his purposes. And his purposes include the protection and provision of his people. How should the believer live in light of this great truth? In great comfort, in bold faith to declare God's plans, and in responsible obedience to what he or she knows God's plan is. This is exactly what we see in Joseph's life. Confidence in God's word. Confidence in the promises that God had given him. One thing that becomes clear not only in the life of Joseph and really throughout our study of Genesis, but throughout all of Scripture is to trust God is to trust His word. To trust God is to trust His word. Some of you may think, that's silly, of course. <laughs> or maybe not. But think of this. Would you come and introduce some, a friend and say, hi, this is my friend, Judy, uh, you should trust her, but don't trust anything she says. <laughs> I mean, it's ludicrous we wouldn't say that, right? Because at the very basic level to trust someone is to be able to trust what they say. When someone lies to you, what happens to trust? It's broken, right? So to trust God is to trust His Word. Three areas where I see Joseph's confidence in God's Word in this story. First, confidence in God's Word provides peace founded in His sovereignty. This is a theme that we have seen, we've been tracing throughout the life of Joseph, and we see it continue on in this part of the story. It's the assurance that Joseph has in God's power over all matters. This transforms his life. When, when the, Joseph's a guy who not only should have been fearful being thrown into a pit, being sold as a slave, being taken to, to become a slave in Egypt, being falsely accused, and all the things that have happened. He should not only have been full of fear, he should have been full of bitterness. God, you promised my great-grandfather the blessing, and, and you repeated it to each, my grandfather, my father. This is, this is the promise? This is what you mean? I mean, Joseph should have been angry, From a human perspective, shaking his fist at God. But what do we see instead? We see someone whose fears are calmed, whose anxieties are, are, are diminished as he faces all of this uncertainty because he is trusting in God's word. That God will do what he says he will do. That God keeps his promises. And this assurance then also gives us, as it did Joseph, the freedom to obey. A lot of times we don't see obedience as freedom. But that's part of the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. That in obedience, there is freedom. And if you've known the enslavement of sin, which we all have, you understand, at least in part, how this works. When we get to do what we want to do that goes counter to God's command, we become what? Not free. Enslaved. And so the assurance of God's word then gives us the freedom to obey. We talked last week about how it gives us the freedom to serve, to serve others, to get outside of ourselves. And what we discover in that service of others, right? It's not just that they get the benefit. This is one of the blessings of God. We we get transformed by that experience. So confidence in God's word gives us peace founded in his sovereignty. Secondly, confidence in God's word is demonstrated in action. A lot of times when people think of the sovereignty of God, they feel paralyzed. Why act? Why, If God's going to do whatever he's going to do, why do I need to act? Or why do I need to pray if God is sovereign? But all you have to do is read scripture to realize that God calls us to obey. He calls us to pray. Why? Because he hears us. He chooses to listen to us. He chooses to respond to our prayers. Yes, according to his will. He's God, not us. We don't get to call the shots. But yet, we're not robots. And he, he is not uh, uh, in heaven um, uh, uh, de- detached from his creation. He calls us to pray. And he works through, we've said this before, and this is hard. He works through us, right? And we think of this in terms of our obedience. He even works through our disobedience. Greatest evidence of that. We've seen this in Genesis. How much dysfunction have we seen in Genesis? And yet God continues to work. Why? Because He's faithful. But But the greatest picture of that, of course, is the cross. That God worked through the sins of men, that awful sin of crucifying the sinless Son of God to what? Accomplish our salvation. So you see, when we are sure of what God says, when we trust what he says, when we trust his word, we're emboldened to obey him. Joseph isn't paralyzed here. He, he's, he, he suggests a plan of action. This is what God said. The famine's coming. Years of abundance followed by famine. Here is a plan of action. You see, knowing God is in control doesn't paralyze us, but enables us to courageously take steps forward in obedience. An example of this, as I prayed this morning, Jesus promised us, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does it look like to trust that promise? What does it look like? First of all, we are the church. We need to be the church. Not, not, not this, the church isn't a building. The church is us. But not only that, We want to see his name made known. And because we are confident in the promise of God that he will build his church, that we can give, and we can go, and we can pray, and we can support on the front lines those who are doing that. Because we believe it, we take him at his word. And because we trust his word, we are filled with courage then to obey. Trusting God's word moves us to action something that we clearly see in Joseph's life. Thirdly, confidence in God's Word is power through His presence. As we take God at His Word, we are empowered by His Spirit's presence in our lives. The Word and the Spirit always work together. The Word and the Spirit are always in harmony. And as a result of the Spirit's power in us, we daily confess our dependence on Him to not only empower us, but to guide us to strengthen us for the task that he calls us to. And this dependence, this is not how we're naturally wired. We are naturally wired to want to be independent. All you have to do is raise a toddler to learn this. That's the way we come into the world. We want to be independent. We don't want to be under authority. We learn to discipline and mask it and so forth as adults, but we fight the same battles. We, all, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. My mom, I visited my parents this past week, and she loves to tell the story. It came out again of my sister, who is not the baby of the family, but is the baby of the family. I always like to point that out. When she was little, mom told her either to sit down or stand up. Well, I'll say it, it was to sit down. And she, she defied her, and she finally did. And she looked at her, and she said, I'm sitting down, but in my heart, I'm standing up. <laughs> That's us. That's us. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be under authority. But God's word, God's promises to us remind us daily that we are dependent on him. And this humility that comes as a result is what we see in Joseph's life. If you think about it, this rise to fame and power, I mean, this is a rocket to fame and power for Joseph. From prison to second in command in the same day, and yet it doesn't go to his head. He remains humble. Why? Because he is rooted in the promises of God. So let's keep those three things in mind as we finish looking at chapter 41. Confidence in God's word provides peace founded in his sovereignty. Confidence in God's word is demonstrated in obedience. And confidence in God's word is power through his spirit's presence. After Joseph finished explaining what the dreams meant, he then kind of veers out of his lane a little bit, doesn't he? offering Pharaoh unsolicited advice. You remember the old stories, the books of the monarch when you entered, if he didn't, you know, give his scepter, uh, that, that, then uh, then you, would, you could be killed, right? In other words, you didn't do things on your own. You didn't take initiative necessarily in front of the king or the queen. You waited for them to call on you. And so Joseph's given some unsolicited advice here after he explains the dream. In verse 33, it says, Now therefore let Pharaoh, this is Joseph, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land. It's Joseph's way of saying, here's what's going to happen. The next logical step is to put this plan in action or put a plan in action and to put someone in charge of it. That was just Joseph's way of saying, this is, this is what you need to do next. Now, a number of people, as I studied this week, pointed out that Joseph was bold, even borderlining on dangerous in doing this. Others suggested that he was bold and dangerous for putting himself forward, but I don't think that's really in the text. Joseph never says, neither does the narrator point out, that he's suggesting himself. We read that into it, I think, because we know the story so well, because we know that Joseph is going to be the person chosen, I think that Joseph is stunned by Pharaoh's selection of him. I think it was, and, and, and this is my reasoning, part of my reasoning, the same spirit, the Holy Spirit who guided Joseph to interpret the dreams is continuing that guidance in Joseph's next sentence. Therefore, what the Pharaoh needs to do is put this plan into action and appoint this person. We look at Joseph's character throughout the story, how he's handled himself. And if we look further, uh, just a little bit further into the story, we see how this all comes together. You see, after the detailed explanation, he gives great detail of what needs to take place. Pharaoh seems really pleased. And how does Pharaoh respond? He responds with this rhetorical question. It says in verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. These were his counselors. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? What pagan asks a question like this? This is not the way the Pharaoh would have normally talked. First of all, the Pharaoh was seen as a deity in Egypt. He was seen as a god to the Egyptians. This is not the way he would normally talk. It's a remarkable thing. Confidence in God's word, provides peace founded in sovereignty. Not only is Joseph confident in God's sovereignty to make the suggestion without Pharaoh's request, I think led by the Holy Spirit, God's sovereignty is demonstrated in Pharaoh's question. God Almighty gives insight to this unbelieving king to point out that his spirit is guiding Joseph. How remarkable is that? Confidence in God's word is demonstrated in action. You see, because God had revealed to Joseph what he was about to do through the dreams, Joseph is then bold to suggest the plan. God's rule and revelation propels him not to remain passive, but to suggest a wise plan of action. He could have just stopped and said, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, there's your dream, see you later but he goes forward again, arguably, because he is being guided by God's Spirit, which the pagan king points out remarkably. If we didn't see it, God is using this unbeliever to point it out, not only to us today, but even to his advisors. Finally, confidence in God's Word is power through his presence. Not only is Joseph confident in God's presence with him, but Pharaoh acknowledges it as well. And the Spirit demonstrates his power through Joseph in giving the plan to save Egypt. In other words, this is not brazenness on Joseph's part to put himself forward. I think Joseph was as surprised as we are when we get to this part of the story to see that he was the one who was selected for this position. See, the confidence in God and his word is what sets Joseph up, not only now to be the servant who would save, deliver the people of Egypt through this plan, through knowing what was going to happen and then the plan to, 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 to bring food in the time of famine. But unknowingly, Joseph is all also, this plan is also going to be that which brings him back to his family, which you reunites him with his brothers and with his father. Without waiting for an answer, Joseph's or, or uh, Pharaoh's, Um advisors don't even get a chance to to answer his question. Thus, it's a rhetorical question. Pharaoh himself says to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And so in one day's time, Joseph goes from the pit to now being lifted up by the king of Egypt, truly being lifted up by the hand of God to being second only to Pharaoh in the land. I think throughout time and even in this episode, we as humans like to think that kings and rulers determine the course of history. But it is clear that kings and rulers only serve the God of history. They don't make history. Consider the prophecy given to the unbelieving king Cyrus in Isaiah 45. This is God's word to Cyrus. He says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Think of the words of Jesus to Pilate. Pilate said to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered to him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So in our own time, when we face uncertainty, it's an election year. There's unrest in our nation. Where's our confidence? Let me tell you something. God is on His throne. He is God and there is no other. We don't have to fear or fret, regardless of who is in power, even when the day comes that we may suffer persecution by the hands of the wicked. Instead, we can rest in confidence in God's word to us that from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Joseph is then exalted. He's given the signet ring. He's given the the linen. He's given the gold chain around his neck. He's placed in the... Pharaoh's second chariot. This is Pharaoh's version of Air Force Two. Everyone would know who Joseph was just by the chariot that he's riding in. And all are going to be now commanded to bow before him. This includes Potiphar. This includes Potiphar's wife who falsely accused him. This includes the cupbearer who forgot Joseph for two years. From the lowest to the highest in the land of Egypt, Joseph was now ruling over everyone. And then Pharaoh changes his name or gives them, he gives him an Egyptian name rather, Zaphonath Paniah. You see what the meaning of that name is? God speaks and lives. Once again, this unbelieving king of Egypt gives to Joseph the name God speaks and lives. The name that would point everyone who hears it to this truth, to trust and to listen to the word of the living God. And finally, Joseph's given an Egyptian wife, which was a sign of honor by the king. It would have connected him throughout the kingdom. And then at the end of verse 45, we see Joseph spring into action. He goes throughout all the land. And then the narrator stops to remind us from where Joseph has come. He's 30 years old at this point. If you remember when his dad sent him out to meet his brothers, when all of this started, he was 17. So for 13 years now, Joseph has been suffering just one thing after another. Nothing really has gone well in Joseph's life until this day. 13 years of suffering, 13 years of injustice, and he never stops trusting God's Word. The seven years of plenty are now beginning And not only is this a time that's fruitful for the land of Egypt, it's fruitful for Joseph vocationally, but it's also fruitful for his family. Joseph and his wife have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh's name means he who causes to forget. He is pointing to God's faithfulness to bring him through the hardship that he endured at his brother's hands and everything that followed, that God through his goodness, is causing him to forget. It's a sign of his grace. And then Ephraim, which means fruitful, again pointing to the one who gave Joseph the increase. It says, even in the land of his affliction. How applicable are both of those names to our own experience? Maybe we don't ever forget-forget, but isn't God's God gracious to us to bring us through difficult things that we may not remember in the moments of pain that we once experienced? Isn't God good to make our lives fruitful even in the land of our affliction? We don't always see that at the time. Sometimes we need a few years to get some perspective and realize what he has done. It shouldn't be lost on us that Joseph gives both of his sons Hebrew names. He's declaring his faith in his God by doing this. He, in other words, Joseph is in Egypt, but he's not of Egypt. He's in the world, but he's not of the world. He continued to take God at his word, resting in the promises that were true, that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And as the years of famine then arrived, following the years of plenty, the people cried out for bread, and Pharaoh sent them to Joseph. Look in the final verse. He says, moreover, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. See, Joseph came from the pit to now be God's servant to bring life in the face of death to the known world at that time. Could he have ever dreamed? Could he have ever imagined? I mean, he knew that the the dream that he had had with his fathers and brothers bowing down to him meant something, but could he have ever imagined this? I hope that it's not hard to miss the other connection, though, beyond Joseph's dream. That in God's redemptive plan, He sent His Son, His servant Jesus, to bring us not bread in time of famine, but the very bread of life. When facing temptation at the hand of Satan, Jesus responded to him by saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And later, after He fed the 5,000, He said to the people, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. See, Joseph provided a bread that would only fill people's stomachs for a short time. He brought salvation in time of famine. It could only cure their hunger. Jesus came to lay his life down that we would never hunger again. He is the bread that gives eternal life. The bread that was broken for my sin and for your sin. We have only to put our trust in him that we may eat and live. And just as God ordered the events of Joseph and all of those people surrounding him, just as he worked in Pharaoh's heart, this unbelieving king, and the lives of all of those from Joseph's imprisonment to his exaltation to save them and the world from this famine, even so God has ordered our redemption through the life and death of his son. Jesus is the word made flesh, John tells us. As we trust him for our salvation, so we trust him for our daily bread to guide us, to direct us. And in trusting his word, we have confidence that provides peace founded in his sovereign rule over all all matters. We have confidence to obey his word and to seek guidance in it. And this confidence is our power through his spirit's presence in us. Jesus says to us today, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He will do it. We can trust His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would You give us a deep sense of confidence? Lord, we know Your Word is true. We confess this regularly. We profess this. But Lord, our hearts often fail us and we doubt. We question. We look at the circumstances in our lives and we think, Is God really? Did God really? Will God really? Really? We doubt your promises. We doubt your word. Lord, would you instill in our hearts such a deep confidence that we can trust what you say. Help us to know your word, to meditate upon your word, to rely on your word. That we might have a confidence in the face of uncertainty. That you will do all that you have said that you will do. That you will lose nothing, nothing of what has been given. But you will raise it up on the last day. Lord, we look with that hope when that day comes. That we will see your face and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.